Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper. Today is episode 84, and we are going to be discussing Fleetwood Mac's Rumors album for its 45th anniversary. Before we get too carried away, I just want to thank you for stopping by. I know the amount of alone time that it takes to get through a podcast isn't always easy to come by these days, so I appreciate you entrusting me with yours. I encourage you to follow the show on any and all social media platforms so that you can be kept abreast of all the latest happenings pertaining to the show. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok at rocktalk.dr.cropper, on Twitter at rocktalkdrcrop with two Ps, and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper. And you can also email me rocktalk.dr.cropper at gmail.com. And please feel free to reach out via any of those platforms if you have any questions for me, feedback, topics that you would like me to cover. Speaking of which, if you want priority sequence for the topic requests or you just have an appetite for a bit more content from me, consider subscribing to Dr. Cropper's Office Hour, the uh, Apple Podcasts exclusive uh, premium spinoff of the show for $4.99 American per month. You get access to a minimum of two subscriber-only bonus episodes in addition to priority sequence for the topic requests and 10% off of merchandise, which we can talk about at the end. And there is a one-month free trial for that. This episode was actually going to be on that show initially, but I canceled the one that was going to be on this show Um like this week. So then I moved this one over and I'm going to come up with another one for the office hour. But anyway, some cool stuff happening over there and different stuff. I started doing matchups, comparing one artist to another. I did Beatles versus Stones uh, the week before last. And uh, I think I'm going to do a follow-up to that one over there this week. And uh, I would especially like those types of topic requests. If you have matchups that you'd like to see with me comparing two different artists. Uh, I thought that was a fun exercise and I would like to do more of it, but I think it will be even more fun if you all pick the matchups for me. So let me know which artists you would like to see me compare. And lastly, before we get going, if you feel so inclined to leave a rating and review wherever you're listening, those are very helpful to me. All right, so off we go. So rumors, 45th anniversary, as this is my first Fleetwood Mac episode, I'll briefly explain how I got into them, uh, if I can even remember. Um, <laughs> I don't, I'm not entirely sure how I, uh, I know I, the first thing I owned of theirs was The Greatest Hits, which has several songs from this, but I think I probably heard them before that. I'm thinking like on satellite radio, when I would be driving back and forth uh, with my dad while he was living in Ohio, I know I remember hearing dreams quite often on classic vinyl and all that. And that's probably what, uh, what motivated me to go buy the greatest hits. And of course, dreams is what you've heard my little samples of here so far. Um, my favorite song on this album. And then uh, eventually I, discovered that rumors is considered their best and went and bought it. And, uh, that's those two, the greatest hits and rumors are actually all that I own physically of their catalog. But, um, there are lots of songs from other albums of theirs that I like, but uh, I think rumors 
well, we'll talk about that later. Um, so in terms of the band history leading up to this, they had started as a blues-based band in England in 1967, and the lineup underwent several fluctuations, culminating in a mid-tour disbandment in October 73, after one of their guitarists, Bob Weston, had an affair with Mick Fleetwood's wife during the tour. Um, a lawsuit then ensued over the rights to the name Fleetwood Mac, after their then-manager claimed that he owned the rights, uh, even though it's Mick Fleetwood's last name and John McVie's last name. Um, so their manager claimed that he owned the rights and assembled a new Fleetwood Mac to complete the touring obligations. Uh, he was nervous that his reputation in the industry would be uh, irrevocably tarnished by uh, having the band just pull out in the middle of a tour like that, um, which is a fair concern. But anyway, partially as a result of this legal situation, but also in an effort to bolster their fledgling popularity in the States, they relocated to Los Angeles in 1974. And long story short, by late 74, after Bob Welsh left that fall, the band were down to Mick Fleetwood, John McVie, and his wife, Christine McVie, with Mick being the only founder remaining, although John was basically an original. He joined before their debut album. So at this point in fall 74, when they've sort of recently moved to California, Mick Fleetwood came across Lindsey Buckingham and his musical partner and, uh, girlfriend Stevie Nicks and asked them to join, which they did on New Year's Eve 1974. They recorded their first album with this new lineup in 1975 titled Fleetwood Mac, uh, presumably in recognition of the fact that in many ways it was a fresh start in terms of lineup and style for them. And that album was released July 11th, 1975, and went number one in the States, confirming that the new lineup was a winner and making the follow-up a highly anticipated affair. So in the months since the creation and release of Fleetwood Mac, the McVees had divorced, Buckingham and Nicks had broken up, and Fleetwood and his wife had divorced, although they would remarry briefly later in 76 to help their kids emigrate to the States. Needless to say, all of this drama made for an interesting writing and recording process for rumors. Christine dated the band's lighting director during the sessions. Mick and Stevie started a two-year affair later in 77 after the album was out. Uh, just a very uh, messy band dynamic going on, which uh, can either totally backfire or can be like the you know, diamonds are created by pressure. And in this case, it produced a diamond. So anyhow, in early 76, I presume January, they did some early work at Criteria Studios in Miami, at which point Mick and John decided to part ways with their producer, Keith Olson, as they felt that he didn't emphasize the rhythm section enough. Uh, understandable concern for the drummer and bassist to have. And then in February 76, the sessions began in earnest as they set up shop at the record plant in Sausalito, California, with engineers Ken Kalat and Richard Daschut, whom the band shared production duties with. Uh, 
Most of the band complained about the studio and wanted to record at home, but Mick insisted that they stick it out. Christine and Stevie rented condos near the harbor while the guys stayed at the studio's lodge in the hills. They spent over two months there with the sessions mirroring much of the excess that had come to characterize the rock experience by the mid-70s, especially in California. According to Chris Stone, who was one of the owners of the studio, the band, uh, quote, the band would come in at seven at night, have a big feast party till one or two in the morning. And then when they were so whacked out, they couldn't do anything, they'd start recording, end quote. I definitely think you can hear that at times, uh, dreams in particular sounds like that late night hedonistic sort of haze. The band allowed Lindsey Buckingham to take on more prominence as they wanted to make a massive hit, and he had a bit more pop sensibility with Fleetwood and the McVees, having uh, come from more of an improvisational blues background. There were some tensions between Lindsey and John, though, which carried over from the sessions for the previous album when, irked by Lindsey attempting to instruct him on how to play his part, John told him, the band you're in is Fleetwood Mac, I'm the Mac, and I play the bass, uh, which is fair, especially when Lindsey was uh, the the new kid on the block then, making his first album with them, and John was basically an original. Uh, anyway, back to the rumors sessions, Dashut felt that the recordings quote, uh, captured, quote, emotion and feeling without a middleman, and... Uh, I think I, I would probably agree with that, even though it's definitely uh, polished. And um, when you hear unfiltered emotion, you typically picture something that sounds very raw. And uh, that's not this album. It's very uh, slick and pristine and um, commercially friendly, I guess you could say. Um they did travel across the bay to UC Berkeley for an all-night session in Zellerbach Auditorium for Songbird, which Kayla felt, uh, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, by the way, sorry if I'm not, uh, felt needed the ambiance of a concert hall to really come alive, and I think it definitely worked. They took a 10-day break in the spring for shows on May 1st at Oakland Coliseum and May 3rd at the Santa Barbara Bowl, and then went back to work at the Record Plants Los Angeles location, as well as both Wally Hyder and Davlin, both in LA. Christine and Stevie skipped most of these sessions unless they were needed, and then they were on tour from June 18th through July 27th before finishing things up in August, followed by six shows in SoCal the last week of August. They did run into one major snag, though, they discovered that the tapes from the Sausalito sessions were damaged due to repeated use, so they had to hire a specialist to fix them using a Verispeed oscillator, and this hiccup led to a delay of the album's intended September 76 release, and they canceled the fall leg of the tour as well so that they could oversee these finishing touches. John McVie suggested the album's title because he felt like they were... Uh, writing diary entries about each other in the songs. Go Your Own Way was released in December 76 as the lead single, and then the album came out February 4th, 1977, and a week later in the UK, 
It reached number one in the States, where it spent 31 non-consecutive weeks at the top. And it also topped the charts in the UK, Australia, Canada, Holland, New Zealand, and South Africa, and charted well in most other countries too. Dreams was released as a single in March and became their only number one song in June, uh, only number one in the States. Uh, And it won the 1977 Grammy for Album of the Year. And it's been a massive seller from the moment it was released. It reached 10 million copies by March 78, so barely a year old, and is now up over 40 million, one of the top one of one of only 10 albums in that stratosphere to have sold uh, 40 million worldwide. It's been certified 20 times platinum by the RIAA, so that's 20 million uh, certified units in the states, and it's uh, it's tied for 11th most in the states, and is 11th highest in the UK as well for all-time sales. It re-entered the charts in May 2011 after a few songs from it were featured in Glee and again in October 2020 after skateboarding to Dreams whilst uh, drinking Ocean Spray Cranberry Juice became a viral TikTok trend started by Nathan Apodaca and eventually joined in on by Mick Fleetwood and Stevie Nicks themselves. The craziest stat to me is that as of October 2019, so it would be higher now given that boost in 2020, but as of two and a half years ago, rumors had spent 800 weeks in the UK top 100 chart, which is the equivalent of about 16 years. That's pretty insane. All right, so that's a lot of background. I would say it's about time we find out why it's so popular. So at this point, we'll transition to the track-by-track observations. Um, My brother Spencer Cropper is going to join us um, uh, between our schedules and just how I thought it might be fun to try doing it this time. Uh, By and large, I tackle the lyrical analysis, and then he does the musical analysis. Um, So the conversation with him is just interspersed this time instead of... um, me talking about it all and then talking about it all again with him trying to uh, shave off as much duplicity duplicity as possible this year um yeah so real quick the personnel before we dive into the track by track Mick Fleetwood drums percussion electric and electric harpsichord on gold dust woman John McVie bass, Christine McVie vocals, keyboards, and synthesizer, Lindsey Buckingham vocals, guitar, dobro, and percussion, and Stevie Nicks vocals. And then the uh, technical credits, Ken Kalat, producer and engineer, uh, Richard Dashut, producer and engineer, and of course the band were also co-producers, and then Chris Morris, assistant engineer, and Ken Perry, and Charlie Watts mastering, and I don't think it's that Charlie Watts. Um, I've never heard any stories about him being involved, and uh, the uh, on the Wikipedia page, it wasn't um, there wasn't a hyperlink on the name, which obviously would be the case if it were the Charlie Watts.
Okay, so the album kicks off with Secondhand News, which was written by Lindsay about what was going on with he and Stevie. The lyrics are as follows. Verse 1, I know there's nothing to say. Someone has taken my place. When times go bad, when times go rough, won't you lay me down in the tall grass and let me do my stuff? I know I've got nothing on you. I know there's nothing to do. When times go bad and you can't get enough, won't you lay me down in the tall grass and let me do my stuff? And then the chorus is just um, vocalizations. Bow, 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 do, doodly do, that kind of thing. <laughs> anyway, uh, verse three. One thing I think you should know, I ain't gonna miss you when you go. Been down so long, I've been tossed around enough. Oh, couldn't you just let me go down and do my stuff? Verse 4, I know you're hoping to find someone who's going to give you peace of mind. When times go bad, when times go rough, won't you lay me down in the tall grass and let me do my stuff? And then the chorus um, twice through. And then the outro, I'm just secondhand news. I'm just secondhand news, yeah. So... Overall, it's accepting that she's moving on, but letting her know that he's still down to hook up if she gets lonely between rebounds. That's the, won't you lay me down in the tall grass and let me do my stuff. Uh, I think I probably don't have to spell that out to you as far as what uh, tall grass could be and what doing his stuff could be. However, there is another way that it can be taken Stevie has also said that a big part of her leaving him was him focusing more on music than her. So that could be what do my stuff is referring to as well. Um, you know, just let me focus on my music. Um, but the, the lay me down in the tall grass suggests the other interpretation more, I think. And then the titular refrain, I'm just secondhand news is interesting because you think about what what characterizes secondhand news. Um, it's less trustworthy than firsthand news because it's like playing telephone. You never know how much the story has changed by the time it gets to you. Um, there's the the sense that it's it's lost its novelty and it's kind of uh, you know not as uh, not as pertinent or useful by the time it's getting to you. So to call yourself secondhand news is interesting. It could be that he's just meaning it sarcastically. Like to her, he's just secondhand news. Kind of like what we were talking about uh, in the Between the Buttons episode a few weeks ago. I forget if that was on this show or the premium one. Um, I think it was on premium actually. Uh the yesterday's papers where he says who wants yesterday's papers who wants yesterday's girl i get the same sort of uh meaning from the term secondhand news all right welcome back to the show brother hey, hey, hey. so we'll start just going track by track uh secondhand news we just talked about the lyrics what uh talk talk to us about the music 
Uh, I like the tempo. It's a great tempo to like start an album off, especially when you think of like, like seventies rock is kind of like, like when you think about Fleetwood Mac, it's like soft rock, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, it's mid tempo, like mid to high tempo, but like emphasis on the mid, like it's yeah. never like 180 beats per minute. And like mid intensity too. Yeah. 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 Where it's like, it's pretty reserved. Um, I like the way this one comes in as like the opening of the album. I was reading, they were actually inspired by jive talking by the Bee Gees, which is like one of my favorite songs. Oh, cool. I could hear that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's one of the better tracks on the album, like top five for sure. Maybe even top three. I'm a really big fan of Lindsay's voice. I like have always, um, thought that the songs he sings lead on are the better ones in their catalog. And it's not because I don't like the other voices in the band. I think Christine McVie is a super underrated singer um, and a really great voice. And of course, Stevie Nicks has that magic to her. Um, Mm -hmm. But Lindsay to me blows the other ones out of the water. Like I think his voice is just phenomenal. And uh, this is a really great one. I mean, his melody is so precise um, and I think it kind of introduces all of the right themes leading into the rest of the album, um, where it's this kind of like, it, it spins love into like a reflective thing where it's like, I'm no secondhand news where it's like, like I should be the main story. Right. Like, but like where it's, it's kind of reflecting on it and taking it like a step further. It's like a secondhand love song kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Or even like um like a talking about a certain love, but after it's happened, like a past tense love song almost. Yeah, he's also said that there's like a bit of a double entendre there, where uh, he's like letting her know that he's still down to to hook up <laughs> if she gets lonely between rebounds. The lay me down in the tall grass and let me do my stuff. Oh wow, you know, <laughs> and like um. I, I think about just the way he belts this one. I'm no second hand news. I'm no second hand news. Right. And it like, it grows in intensity the whole way through. Yeah. And it's so unusual how the chorus is just vocalizations of him, like mimicking the groove. like Yeah. It's funny. It's like scatty in that way, but mm-hmm. I think it has all the right magic to it. And it's like very much like, Oh, Lindsay, like, look what I can do. Cause like his combination, like when he sings, what I hear is a song that's really, really precisely crafted. Like all of those notes are perfectly placed and he's executing them all perfectly as well. But like when you see the kind of stuff that he could play on guitar while singing, it's just breathtaking. Mm. And also the, he tapped out the drum part to this on a chair because Mick Fleetwood was having some trouble getting the right feel. Oh yeah. It's funny how like now you can pretty much do everything with a metronome. Like you can customize your metronome so that it actually sounds good. Like I always record your click and um, like, it doesn't have to sound like a standard, like metronome that you would see in a music classroom. Right. Like it, it can sound like all kinds of things and it just has to give you the right pulse. Um, But back then, like, that was kind of like a commodity. Like at the end of the day, like a lot of songs, if you think about Beatles songs, you think about Fleetwood Mac songs, like 
a lot of them could start out with one of them just sitting there and going and recording that with a mic so that the rest of them were like all generally where they were thinking. Yeah. Which is funny to me. Like it's just seems like an odd way of doing it. But you know, when you do hand percussion like that, that's kind of eclectic, like doing it on something that you wouldn't typically think of as an instrument, it does add a really interesting quality to it. Like a, a not a campfire sing-along kind of thing, but just kind of a an impromptu like get together jam. Kind oh of. yeah. Like ramble on and look at how much speculation that's spurned. Like, oh, was it a guitar case? Was it a garbage can? Was it yeah. Right. And it's like, it doesn't matter. Like it just sounds weird where you're like, Oh, what's that? I haven't heard that before. Yeah. And now we hear from Stevie on track two, which is dreams. Verse one. Now here you go again. You say you want your freedom. Well, who am I to keep you down? It's only right that you should play the way you feel it, but listen carefully to the sound of your loneliness, like a heartbeat drives you mad in the stillness of remembering what you had and what you lost and what you had and what you lost. Uh, That part's the pre-chorus from like a heartbeat drives you mad. Uh, So verse one in the pre-chorus basically predicts that Lindsay won't enjoy his freedom as much as he thinks he will. And then the chorus, Oh, thunder only happens when it's raining. Players only love you when they're playing. Say, women, they will come and they will go. When the rain washes you clean, you'll know. You'll know. Um, Thunder only happens when it's raining, to me, implies that an, an inextricable link between the success of the band and the issues in their relationship um, by all accounts, they were in a good place before the band really took off, uh, or, you know, before they joined. Cause the, uh, you know, they went number one with the first thing once they joined, um, once it started raining, raining money, fame and groupies explosions like thunder started popping up in their relationship or the rain could be the sadness caused by the issues. Uh, but if you give that up, you're also giving up the thunder of success. Either way, it's saying you can't have all of the positives of success without the negatives as well. So that's the first level, the most detailed level of interpretation. And then if you, you zoom out one level, it can also be referring to relationships more broadly. And the fact that passion usually goes both ways. If the positive emotions are strong, the negative emotions will be too. Um, a friend of mine who shall remain nameless, of course, was dating a woman who was kind of, well, she was pretty emotionally reserved and, uh, you know, some might even say cold. And, uh, to him, he sometimes felt like he wasn't getting enough that way and she wasn't affectionate enough and stuff. But the flip side was she was very you know chill about things and never took his head off and sent page long essays when, uh, she got mad about something and then he, they broke up and he started dating a new girl who's very bubbly and affectionate. And he's like, Oh dude, this is amazing. And I said, okay, just be careful though. Cause usually, um, 
the the strength of the emotional expression stays the same whether it's a positive or a negative uh, valence to those emotions um it's like a parabola you know if you whichever wherever you are on the y axis on one side of the parabola you're going to it's like a law of nature you're on the <laughs> the same spot on the y axis on the other side of the parabola um so i think you can interpret this line that way that um if you want the uh the thunder of like passion often goes hand in hand with uh, the potential for rain uh, and it can also apply if we zoom out one more level to life in general you have to expose yourself to the potential of getting hurt or rained on if you want to experience all that life has to offer the thunder so overall pretty cool for six words to say so much and then players only love you when they're playing could be calling him a player in the colloquial sense as far as a man who um you know gets lots of women for uh casual things and flings rather a you know stereotypical ladies man could also be saying that he only loved her when they were making music together as in playing like playing your instrument sort of a transactional love of how he, she could help him as a musician or it could be in keeping with the following line in verse two um, suggesting that other women coming after him are only uh, they only pretend to truly love him uh, whereas stevie actually did and then the second half of the chorus basically says that after he's exhausted himself from casual flings and the dust settles, he'll realize what he had and what he lost. Okay, verse two. Now here I go again, I see the crystal visions. I keep my visions to myself. It's only me who wants to wrap around your dreams and have you any dreams you'd like to sell. Dreams of loneliness. And then the pre-chorus again, like a heartbeat drives you mad in the stillness of remembering what you had and what you lost and what you lost and what you had. Oh, what you lost. Um, so crystal visions are the fantasies that she had and still has of what their future together could have been. She keeps them to herself because it's too late now that ship has sailed, but she's still aware of how good it could have been. And she cares about the, as far as the, uh, it's only me who wants to wrap around your dreams. She cares about the real Lindsay because she knows the real Lindsay was with him before he was famous. Whereas these hordes of women now showing interest in him, uh, don't know or really care about the dreams that he has deep down. And I love how the, the base changes a little bit on the wrap around your dreams. Uh, goes, um, almost, uh, kind of an oxymoron where it uh you p picture wrapping like a s smooth swooping you know wrapping a a blanket around yourself um which where most of the song is really smooth and flowing and then the when it says wrap around it gets choppier in the bass um maybe suggesting that uh 
you're em- emphasizing how that's not going to happen anymore, that she wanted to wrap around his dreams, but won't be. Um, and then have you any dreams you'd like to sell? Basically calls him a sellout, which is the worst diss you can give to an artist, um, saying he either readily gave up his true dreams or passions or desires for success or just makes up dreams, passions, subject matter that he thinks will sell. Um, either way, pretty biting line. Uh, and then from there, it's just the chorus uh, twice more in the outro. You'll know, you will know, oh, you'll know. Um, I've always loved the song. It's the first Fleetwood Mac song I remember really catching my attention. Like, wow, this is amazing. Uh, but I'll be honest, I never really, I never really realized how deep and clever the lyrics were until I analyzed them like this, which is often the case and a big part of why I always do this for every song that we talk about. Because, uh, well, first of all, it helps me gain a new appreciation for the stuff and understand it at a deeper level. It helps you notice a lot of the thematic linkages throughout an album. And, um, I want to help you guys understand them because a lot of times, uh, as it happens to me too, you gloss over certain parts of a song, um, cause maybe the way they enunciate it isn't always super clear. And then, uh, you don't bother looking them up and reading them. And oftentimes you can not quite understand the meaning of a song or misunderstand the meaning for years, uh, just by, uh, glossing over one or two words that are like the, the, uh, the key to the safe that suddenly unlocks the whole meaning of it. Um, and I think, uh, to a certain extent, lyrics kind of get neglected, uh, and the artists obviously put time into, to writing them. So I think they deserve to be, uh, appreciated anyhow. So that's uh, today's soapbox rant. Okay, dreams. What do you, what do you think about the music here? Uh, I love that it's had a resurgence in the last couple of years. Um, it's funny because the other day, um, I think I was at work and um, somebody was like, it was like a kid, right? And they're like, "What's a Fleetwood Mac?" And I was like, "What?" <laughs> I was like, you're kidding me, right? But then I was like, if there's one song by Fleetwood Mac that I think everybody like, like it doesn't matter what age they are would know it's this one. Yeah. Like I think everyone's heard this, like, especially with when it blew up on TikTok. there, I think the music's great. I love that the crash of the drums is on the two. So that it's this kind of like, right. Where it kind of gives you that feel of like that slingshot where you like hold it. And then it's. Well, yeah, the one is on the end of the fill floor, Tom and bass and then yeah. snare crash. Yeah. Which is just, I, I really like that. Um, that fill coming in is so iconic, right? Like it sounds like its own thing entirely. Yeah. And he does another kind of like spin of it later in the song. That's a bit longer, but so like extravagant because of 
how long it lasts, but totally reserved. Yeah. Yeah. Like his style of drumming, it never sounds like he's like going too far. Like it's all very, you know, hearing the part and just executing it. And of course that would come from the fact that by this point, right? Like he'd been playing professionally for over a decade. Yeah. They formed in 67. So, yeah. Well, but before then, uh, like Mick Fleetwood and John McVie were in the blues breakers, right? Right. Yeah. So like, I mean, like that's big time experience. You're playing with Eric Clapton (laughs) and, and Mick Taylor and all these, these people, right? Like, you know, he'd been doing that for like four or five years before Fleetwood Mac even started. And then this came out and it, it like, they have that distinct sound to it where it's, you can hear that he's worked out all of these different tools as a drummer and he's like really good at executing them to the point that it doesn't sound like it's challenging for him. Even mm-hmm. though if you sit down at a kit and try to play this, like it's pretty difficult to do. Yeah. It's one of those mind over matter things. Whenever you have stuff like that with the upbeat crashes and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think about that feel where he's like, it's kind of like that kind of thing where it's like, where he's like emphasizing the, the off beats. And I mean, honestly, as I was kind of, browsing through all the different songs on this album. I just find myself kind of stunned at how good all of the songs are because I find that like so many albums at some point they run out of the good songs and you start being like, okay, I'd rather go back and listen to like my favorite song from the album than to kind of slog through these last ones. Mm -hmm. And the sign of a great album is when it's like, no, like there's none of those um, and I mean, this one, like, as I was trying to rank it, it's like the bottom three songs are still like three really good, well done songs. Um, so yeah, I mean, dreams, I think ends up being the best song on the album. Like to me, it's my favorite. It's a great groove. Um, it's really simple. Like the bass playing is really simple. Um, but that's the thing, like their magic was like, they could be so reserved, but they would show off their chops in exactly the right spot to push the song forward. Oh yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful example of the whole being exceeding the sum of its parts. And um, they, I was reading about the recording process at uh, the record plant in Sausalito. And they said uh, they would get there at like seven at night, have a big feast and then party till one or two. And then, once they were like too like loaded to do anything, then they would start recording and dreams definitely has that late night hedonistic haze kind of feel to it. That's not, it sounds like such an outrageous things, uh, outrageous way to like get things done, but I mean, it worked. So <laughs> yeah, I would definitely put dreams high on my list of like nighttime drive songs. I don't know. I mean, it's one of those songs that uh, I can't think of a time I wouldn't want to hear it. Well, like, yeah. I'm happy to hear it anyway. Like yeah. anytime, any place, doesn't matter what I'm doing. Like if that came on, I'd be instantly, by the time that Phil finishes, you're like, oh yeah, this one again. <laughs> but it, yeah, of course. I find it especially suited, I should say, to like at night cruising around. Maybe because a lot of the first time I remember hearing it, 
was like on satellite radio driving down to Ohio with dad when it was like dusk or that kind of time of day, I guess. It's, um, yeah, I agree with you there that it's like late night car song. Great time to hear it. Like as a, a little prelude and then put on a, a nice dark star. <laughs> oh God, you've lost me now. <laughs> Track three is Never Going Back Again, which takes us back over to Lindsay. Verse one, she broke down and let me in, made me see where I'd been. Chorus, been down one time, been down two times. I'm never going back again. Verse two, you don't know what it means to win. Come round and see me again. And then the chorus again, been down one time, been down two times. I'm never going back again. so quite an economy of words. Uh, basically, he's now happy with his rebound girl, and it can mean both that he's never going back to Stevie and also be mocking the notion we often have at the start of a new relationship that now our troubles are behind us and we won't be down anymore. It also kind of reminds me of uh, there's these YouTubers from rural Ontario, uh, a place called Inwood, out west of London, um, who, uh, do these, uh, they make these makeshift kind of go-kart thingies out of ride on lawnmowers and jump over old appliances. Um, and anyway, the, uh, the, it's called one pug life. If you want to check them out, uh, my, my brother got me a t-shirt for Christmas one year, my birthday or something. But anyway, um, the, uh, uh, in one of the videos, the guy says, ay, 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 I said two times. And the uh, been down one time, been down two times makes me think of that, which was probably a completely useless anecdote there on my part. But hey, that's my prerogative. Okay, never going back again. I've always loved this song. The guitar part is extremely hard to play. I think you could try to replicate it with two guitars and still be finding it really difficult. Yeah. Um, and that's a testament, like, right? Like, if you go watch a live video of Lindsay playing this, it's stunning. The ability to split up, like, his thumb and the rest of his fingers, but then his voice is something completely different. Mm-hmm. And it's all going on at the same time seamlessly. Um, where did I put this? It's like the it's like my fifth favorite on the album. And it's definitely the only one that is up at the top where it's like stripped back. Like to me, um, I think Fleetwood Mac is one of those bands where I'm just like, I don't want to hear a little acoustic ditty. Like I just I want to hear the band playing it together. Like when they strip it back, it kind of loses it for me because I'm like, you really can't take the drums and bass out of this combo. Like it's it's really important to the sound. Mm-hmm. Right. When you listen to Never Going Back Again, it's very different sonically. But I think it's one of the best guitar sounds ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. It's crystal clear. Like 
it sounds so hi-fi even now it's like wow that's that's pretty hard to record an acoustic instrument at that level yeah i was just recently the past two weeks talking about um because i did surrealistic pillow and then i just did eat a peach so i was saying how embryonic journey little martha and bron rar off physical graffiti are like my three like those three acoustic guitar instrumentals are like equally beautiful in my mind but all kind of different and this is like on that level buddy's singing on top of it which is really cool yeah i always kind of had a an awe of this song because i like realizing that he played it and sang it at the same time was mind-blowing for me All right, track four is Don't Stop, which was written by Christine, but uh, sung by both she and Lindsay. They like trade verses and do the chorus together. Um, anyhow, verse one, if you wake up and don't want to smile, if it takes just a little while, open your eyes and look at the day, you'll see things in a different way. Chorus, don't stop thinking about tomorrow, don't stop, it'll soon be here. It'll be better than before. Yesterday's gone. Yesterday's gone. Verse 2. Why not think about times to come and not about the things that you've done? If your life was bad to you, just think what tomorrow will do. And then the chorus again. Verse 3. All I want is to see you smile. If it takes just a little while, I know you don't believe that it's true. I never meant any harm to you. And then the chorus twice and an outro, ooh, don't you look back, repeated several times. So pretty self-explanatory, I think, but a necessary jolt of optimism and civility at this point after some uh, back and forth between Lindsay and Stevie, the first three songs. This is one that has started to lose its impact on me over the years, having heard it so many times. And then I forget when I learned this, but when I realized that it was like a campaign song for Bill Clinton, nothing to do with Bill Clinton, but just the fact that it was a campaign song, I was like, that's really corny. And like, then when I listened to it, I'm like, yeah, this is the corniest song on the whole album. I, I see you told me that when we were doing the doors episode and now I can't unhear it. Yeah, I know. Like, I'm like, it kind of sounds like it was made for that. intention. It just it's like, like ruins it. Well, you know, the movie definitely maybe how he like yeah. work works on the Clinton campaign in the movie. I was just picturing like them in the movie partying at their like headquarters every time I was doing that. Um, a hundred percent. I like hear it and picture that movie as well. Yeah. Great movie. Still a good song, but yeah. Like I, I kind of grouped the songs. There's basically two groups of songs on this album and it's like songs that I like, and I would go listen to just individually, not just if I was listening to rumors and mm-hmm. then songs that I'm like, yeah, probably won't listen to it but if i listen to rumors i'll listen to the whole way through i'm not going to skip them fair enough and, and so 
there's basically eight of them that I'm like, no, I, I would go listen to that on its own. And then there's three where I'm like, yeah, I'll listen to it in the album. And so those three are Gold Dust Woman, uh, Songbird, and Oh Daddy. Hmm. So the, the rest of them are all in that kind of upper echelon of songs where it's like, no, it's a really great standalone track. Uh, Don't Stop is, of course, in those eight, but it's at the lower end, like bottom couple of those for me, just because it like part of the appeal of the Fleetwood Mac thing is that when they unleashed Lindsay and let him coach them in this direction of like, this is how to make a hit pop song. Like this, this is going to get us on the radio. This is going to make us huge, which of course this album did. Mm-hmm. Um, was that it's balanced out with, I mean, one, their lifestyle, which was like not the kind of stuff that you can put in a pop song. Like it's, you know, they were really into the rock star lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, so that like you listen to the drums and the bass and that's like very bluesy, very R and B. Um, like it's the blend of everything that you listen to and you're like, wow, that's really distinct because at the end of the day, when you finish the song, you can still sing it in your head. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so important to me that I'm like, yeah, I mean, you could sit here and be like, you know, this is my favorite song and, and no, I don't like this one as much. But at the end of the day, they're all catchy and like over 75% of the tracks on this album are like perfectly catchy. Yeah. Where it's like, there isn't a thing I would change on it. So, um, you know, Don't Stop falls into that. Um, I think it's uh, a great showcase of Christine's voice. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think it's a shame that she didn't sing lead on more songs Mm -hmm. Uh, and like it's hearing a song like this where you're like she could have sung on any of those you know bigger more upbeat songs and sounded great Mm. yeah i I will say in don't stop's defense i probably i like it a bit better than you do i like uh how it's sort of like in in line with the title fleetwood's drumming the whole time is like bass and snare on every beat. It's like, so I like that persistence. And as you were alluding to with the lifestyle, um, cocaine was a big factor at this point in uh, the, the mid seventies, you know, rock star excesses. And uh, you can definitely get that vibe from things like that in this song, that persistence and like kind of it's it's glossy but jittery yeah 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 definitely the whole album that would be a fitting description glossy but jittery (laughs) yeah well and i was thinking how the last time you were on about a month ago when we were talking about the doors debut which predates this but almost exactly a decade and in terms of when it was recorded and when it was released in that in that one we talked a lot about the the acid fueled idealism of the mid 60s especially in california and then by this point 10 years later it had transitioned into coke fueled hedonism yeah it it definitely i mean like you could isolate those two albums as like signs of completely different times um you know yeah it's very far removed from what you hear in the 60s and the sound quality is just night and day 
like of what you were able to do with studio technology at the time. So like oh, yeah. this is one of those records where it's like one of the earlier ones. Like if you think about this, you think about Thriller, like those stand up against records being made today, which like just are, they're being recorded better because we have better technology to do so. And mm -hmm. like, it's more accessible, right? Like not that the stuff from the sixties and the seventies doesn't sound great and doesn't suck up because it does, but you do hear a difference. Whereas like this, it's like, not, I mean, it just sounds like a really well-produced, like could be a, an indie band for all I care. Mm -hmm. Right. But like the sound quality is really, really top notch. Oh yeah. This one's definitely a treat for the years. D did you know though that they actually almost lost that? Cause they, uh, they took a little break after the Sausalito sessions and had two shows and then they went back to work in LA and realized that the tapes from Sausalito were damaged from like overuse during the sessions. So they had to bring in a specialist with a various speed oscillator to like restore them. That's funny. Um, that's one of the things about tape that is actually a set, uh, setback. Yeah. Is that like you, you can only erase stuff so much before the tape is crap and you need new tape. And like, that's one of the bright sides of recording music now is like, you could literally do a thousand takes of something to get it right. Like, not that that's the ideal way, but if it's what you're going for and you're trying to achieve that kind of note for note perfectionism, like you, you have a lot more uh, range to explore now. Whereas back then it was like, you only had like, I don't know, maybe a dozen takes to like mm -hmm. get apart before you were going to start messing with the overall sound quality of the whole song. Yeah. Okay, and then we're back over to Lindsay for Go Your Own Way. Loving you, verse one, loving you isn't the right thing to do. How can I ever change things that I feel? If I could, maybe I'd give you my world. How can I when you won't take it from me? So he suggests he may be inclined to make some grand gesture to win her back, but figures that it wouldn't be received, so why bother? And then the chorus, you can go your own way, go your own way. You can call it another lonely day. You can go your own way, go your own way. Um, pretty self-explanatory. Verse two, tell me why everything turned around, packing up, shacking up's all you want to do. If I could, baby, I'd give you my world. Open up, everything's waiting for you. Um so he accuses her of being the one wanting to sleep around at will, which Stevie has vehemently denied and said she really uh, didn't appreciate that line. Um, since, uh, she says it wasn't true. And, uh, if you listen to her songs on the album, he would be the one supposedly who is, uh, more interested in sleeping around anyway. Um, it does end with that verse does end with him, uh, releasing her, uh, not that she needs that obviously, but the, uh, I think that's a really great line, the open up, everything's waiting for you. Um, sort of, uh, yeah, a kind send off, uh, and then the chorus again. And then, uh, yeah, it's just more repetition of that for the rest of it. Um, in a way it's kind of him returning her sentiment from dreams 
when she says it's only right that you should play the way you feel and uh, him saying you can go your own way. You and I disagree on this one. I think it's your last song on the whole album. It's my second. Uh, I don't think it's overplayed. I don't think it's overrated. I think it's a superb song. It's supremely put together. Uh, the blend of the vocals is really great. Um, I, I love how the acoustic guitars sound on this really distinct sound. Um, and yeah, I mean, it just kind of thunders along. I think it's, um, one of, one of the few songs on the album that it's like, if you only had time to listen to one, you should listen to this one. And that's going to give you a good indicator of the overall album. Hmm. Fair enough. Yeah. It's not that I, it's not that I hate it full stop. I, I find it, it gets a little repetitive for my liking toward the end, like vocally. And, um, also <laughs> it, well, it reminds me of, uh, of journey a little bit, like, uh, don't stop believing that kind of two songs that maybe got ruined a little bit for me by like, playing them on guitar hero and stuff too many times see and- this is where i disagree because i i hate don't stop believing like i mean i know every word i could belt it out uh, and in the right setting it's not so bad but in general i despise when that song comes on the radio yeah. and this one i mean i hear the similarities but this one has all of the things that don't stop believing is missing in my opinion yeah, fair. Like I still like it better, but it, yeah, it kind of. When I was listening to it the other day, it made me think a little bit. Like this sounds like a if you're making a a rockumentary or like one of those movies, like Almost Famous, that's set in the '70s, focusing on some fictitious rock band. It sounded like the song that the band in the movie would write. Like a, I don't want to go so far as to say a parody of like '70s rock, but. No, but I mean, it could be like one of those songs where you're like, yeah, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's sketchy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we can agree on that. I like the dyna- the dynamic that comes across. I just don't think there's that many songs where it's like, it's literally being sung by two people that have been in love, have broken up. And it's about like, you can go your own way. Like, yeah, fair. You know, that it it is a really interesting dynamic and you can hear the emotion in the vocals. Yeah, and I will say I love the uh, the line, uh, "Open up, everything's waiting for you." Like setting yeah. the person free. Yeah, I really like um, his verses. Like the way that it sinks back into it is really nice. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I meant to mention on "Don't Stop." Um, Lindsay's solo starts like what I what I was just saying about like if you were making a cliche of like rock, just like repetitive bends, and you can picture some guy like you know, doing all the facial expressions, like he's yeah, yeah, really yeah. shredding, but he's actually, yeah, not. but, but then the exit is really cool. How he kind of like paints himself into a corner and then goes off on like a, something akin to what Mick Taylor would do on the way out of midnight rambler or a few of those 71 hard to handles I've shown you where Jerry Garcia has a really cool exit. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I, um, because you threw one in there. I forgot to mention on uh, 
dreams that it's only two chords the whole way through. So it would, it would make the list of the few really, really simple and by simple meaning, like, I mean, basically how many chords you've got in it songs that I do like, and that like I listen to and I'm like, no, it doesn't need a third chord. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I, I've never, ever thought that like normally when I hear a song that's like that, I'm like, okay, but you know, you could have brought in a third chord and made a bridge out of it. Come on now. Yeah. It's one of those few like perfect pop songs, like good vibrations, satisfaction. Couple right. Of- <laughs> but like totally different where like, right. Like good vibrations is like a really mystical, like, it, I mean, those chords are outrageous. And then this yeah. is like literally the simplest thing you can think of. And the thing that what's funny about this is that it never plays the home chord of the key. It's this vamp between F and G and is really in the key of C. Um, it's really common chords to play. It's like when we talk about three chord pop, it's one, four, and five. So mm-hmm. it plays the four and the five, but it never plays the one. And that's why it has that mystical, mystical thing about it because you know, I mean, like you don't have to be a trained ear. Like what you're hearing is this constant tension of, okay, we're close, we're closer. Oh no, we back to the first spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, closer. Oh man. I, I can't get a feel for this. It, it keeps not landing where I think it's going to land. And then it still never lands at the end. Mm. All right. And then we're back to Christine for songbird to wrap up side one verse one for you. There'll be no more crying for you the sun will be shining and i feel that when i'm with you it's all right i know it's right verse two to you i'll give the world to you i'll never be cold because i feel that when i'm with you it's all right i know it's right chorus and the songbirds are singing like they know the score and i love you i love you i love you like never before bridge and I wish you all the love in the world, but most of all, I wish it from myself. And then the chorus again. Um, the uh, the verses are, are pretty simple and a, a sweet sentiment, uh, kind of in line with what we've just been talking about the last couple songs. Um, you know, letting the, the person go and not harboring too many hard feelings. Um, the chorus though, the songbirds are singing like they know the score. I'm just going to read you or at least skim over this one, uh, comment I saw on it that I think is, uh, it's from an anonymous source, but I think was uh, pretty astute on a literal level. The lyrics suggest that the birds are actually singing the tune of McVie's song as if they have seen the sheet music, the score for it. Because the word songbird can refer both to birds that sing to attract mates and to outstanding female vocalists, McVie and the birds are connected through their attempts to attract a partner with song. But the chorus's play on the word score also suggests that these attempts are unlikely to be successful, since of course a singer knows the score of the music that they're singing, so why would you bother mentioning it? It means it's probably using score um, 
in the more idiomatic sense, um, that she understands the reality of the situation. Um, and in this case, uh, the, that reality seems to be that the singer is helplessly in love with a man who does not reciprocate her affection. Yet this, uh, lack of reciprocity seems to inspire her to love him even more, or perhaps differently that like never before, um, she, she realizes that it's a waste to keep loving him with that, uh, romantic love like she did as a wife, but she still, still cares a lot for him and, um, loves him like never before because she sees her love for him evolving into something different. Um, and then the, this person goes on to say the hopelessness of the singer's situation may be further underscored by the fact that the noun songbird can also refer to a caged bird kept for its singing, constrained to sing alone forever. So, um, thank you very much to whoever, uh, made those astute observations and, uh, makes that line kind of similar to the thunder only happens when it's raining from dreams in, uh, being a very chock full of meaning little, uh, phrase that can be taken a number of different ways. Really gorgeous piano ballad here. There is some acoustic guitar that, uh, spices it up a little, but, um, Christine definitely gets her, her showcase piece as the songbird here and, uh, gorgeous playing and singing. The vocal's really great on it. Um and I think it's a really good song. I think I think where it gets heard is when I stack it up next to the other songs which is like it's so sonically different that I'm like I don't know like this one on its own I would just have to be in a completely different mood to listen to it and like for me that's not the kind of music that I typically end up listening to like really reserved ballad kind of stuff isn't really my thing. And it seems that over time I just get more and more interested in like uh, the faster it is, the better. Okay. Interesting. But I think it's a really beautiful song. Mm-hmm. A great performance. Yeah. And they actually uh, zipped across the Bay to UC Berkeley to record it in a concert hall there because the engineer thought it could benefit from that kind of ambiance. And you can hear that. The piano sounds massive. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it's a great piano sound. Yeah, agreed. All right, and then side two kicks off with The Chain. Uh, which is the only song on the album that isn't a solo writing credit, actually, uh, credited to the entire band. Verse 1, listen to the wind blow, watch the sun rise, run in the shadows, damn your love, damn your lies. So the first half could suggest staying up all night, stewing over the relationship and its issues in silence, or hearing rumors about what your lover slash now ex is up to. Um, Run in the shadows implies doing things in secret, likely affairs, and damn your love, damn your lies. Their lies have made their love unappealing. Um, I also love how 
you know, it, it starts with that four on the floor, the four on the floor with uh, the bass drum, bass drum from Mick, and then it all pauses before the verse starts, uh, as if they're uh, they're mimicking like a a ticking time bomb, the symbolizing you know the race the relationship is like a ticking time bomb, and then suddenly it hits zero, and then the verse starts. Um, chorus and if you don't love me now you will never love me again i can still still hear you saying you would never break the chain and if you don't love me now you will never love me again i can still hear you saying you would never break the chain um so the the first part of it if you don't love me now you'll never love me again could be saying this is your chance to your one chance to smarten up and then the rest of it is pretty self-explanatory the chain symbolizing you know trust or the relationship as a whole uh i've also seen it said that it kind of refers to the bond between them as bandmates they they all felt like they they had something there tying them together that that never let them really break away from each other even with all of their uh, interpersonal issues with their relationships and all that. Um, and then verse two, uh, listen to the wind blow down comes the night run in the shadows. Damn your love. Damn your lies. Break the silence. Damn the dark. Damn the light. So that last part, uh, eventually they'll have to stop pretending that they aren't aware of the running in the shadows that they're both doing and neither staying silent uh uh damn the dark nor the fallout likely to result from breaking the silence damn the light are attractive options and then it repeats the chorus several times and then uh there's an outro chain keep us together run in the shadow and lots of call and response sort of action happening in the vocals Uh, this is one where, I mean, I still think it's like one of the best on the album. I think I have it as sixth. This is one where like, I've heard it too many times and I just don't go back to it at the moment. Cause I, I don't find myself seeking it, mm. but there were definitely times where I listened to this like a lot. Mm. Like I remember it being a favorite of mine as I was like much younger. I think the chords are interesting. It has this very sullen feel to it right the way that those guitar chords come in it's very like a um, bit of a spaghetti western kind of vibe to me dum, 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 like the way that that guitar is yeah well which fits the lyrics because it's kind of like they're you've been up all night stewing over like what's going wrong in their relationship and there's like an impending uh standoff or shoot up between the two of you yeah, a hundred percent. It perfectly captures that vibe. This one, it even gets a little repetitive for me at the end, which I know is part of the like tag. Oh, you will never break the chain, and then it keeps going. Like you will never break the chain. Like you're drilling at home. Yeah, but even me, I'm like, okay, it's a bit much at this point. <laughs> it's like in the in the the crit in the 
uh, what, Monty Python, the Holy Grail, when it's like, get on with it. Yes, get on with it. <laughs> yeah, it just goes around and around forever. And then we're back over to Christine for You Make Loving Fun. Verse one, sweet, wonderful you, you make me happy with the things you do. Oh, can it be so? This feeling follows me wherever I go. Chorus, I never did believe in miracles, but I have a feeling it's time to try. I never did believe in the ways of magic, but I'm beginning to wonder why. And then uh, verse two, don't, don't break the spell. It would be different and you know it will. You, you make loving fun. And I don't have to tell you, but you're the only one. And then the outro, you, you make loving fun with the backing vocals going, it's all I want to do. Um, so the don't break the spell, it would be different and you know it would line, uh, and you know it will rather, uh, suggests to me, uh, she's thinking that they should keep it at least somewhat secret, afraid that it would lose the magic if it became public or an official relationship. Uh, this by the way, is about, um, the, their, uh, their lighting, their lighting director, who she was, uh, dating at the time. Um, and then I don't have to tell you, but you're the only one is a great line that could mean two things and could mean them simultaneously. One, she doesn't owe him exclusivity or even an explanation of whether or not there are other guys, but she tells him anyway, and or that she shouldn't have to tell him because she thinks it's probably obvious to him, but she tells him anyway, just so he's sure. Either way, a great line. And I love how this one starts with Mick uh, counting them in very obviously on the hi-hat that on the snare and then it starts. And like dreams, it's another one that just has a classic late seventies mellower rock sort of sound with the keyboard, uh, taking prominence and, uh, a great groove with pretty persistent drums and bass. Uh, it's a really nice one. Actually, as a matter of fact, those are my two favorite songs on the album. Great song. Uh, I think I've got it number four on my list. Um, you make love and fun. I always, whenever I think of the songs, I'm like, can I hum the where the title is in the song? Because mm-hmm. um, like that's why this album is so successful. Because it's eleven really good pop songs, eight yeah. of which are like some of the best ever. Which that's a crazy number out of 11 songs on an album that people would be like, Oh, eight of them are like top hundred, top 200, whatever the number is like songs ever. Yeah. I really like the, I don't have to tell you, but you're the only one line. Yeah. That's a great line there. I find that this album is chock full of like so many lyrics where it's like, you know, kind of hidden, like the song's so beautiful that you don't pay that much attention to the actual lyrics, even though the lyrics are really good and like clever the way that 
they're constructed. Yeah. And it's because it's pop. It's like little tidbits thrown in here and there like that. It's not like listening to a Bob Dylan album where you've got your notepad ready and you're like, okay, I got to analyze every single word here. Wait, wait, what did the Joker do again? Um, And the man in the alley, what, what was wrong with his shoes? And (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. Not like that, but like subtle where, where it's, you throw in like one of those really hard hitting lines of verse and it really pushes the song along. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, you kind of have these anchors where you're like, uh, I couldn't name off every lyric to you, but I remember when they said this and like that really hooked me. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not a song I would call simple. Like, and this is, I've never played the song. I don't know the chords. So I honestly have, I have no idea, but just based on what I'm hearing, mm-hmm. like it feels like it explores the key, like pretty fully where it goes to most of the different spots within the key. Okay. Um, like most pop stuff will end up stay, sticking to four chords and like you can do everything with four chords. You don't need more than that. Mm-hmm. Like truthfully, everything's just a substitution of that. But one of the things with like soft rock is that like you don't hear a lot of five to one uh, resolutions, which is like, um, uh, like you don't hear a lot of that. You hear okay. a lot of this, which is four to one and okay. it's much lazier. It's much less, you know, exaggerated. Okay the voice leading it really what is happening is that one of the notes between the four chord and the one chord is shared. So you have less movement. Uh, like you can hear that it's shifting down, but you can also hear that there's one note that just stayed the same. Okay. And that's, what's like kind of giving you that laid back feel is they're literally choosing chords where it's like the voice leading is going to be laid back. It doesn't matter what you do with it. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, uh, I think Christine sings the lead vocal on that, right? Yeah. Another great one, right? Where I'm like, man, she. I mean, she should add her own band where she sang every song. <laughs> well, and uh, I like the the keyboard sound on it. It plays a bit more prominent role in the groove. Her work on keyboards is super underrated. It's like, I don't hear people talk about it when they talk about Fleetwood Mac, but I'm like, it's a huge part of the sound. Because mm-hmm. most bands don't have somebody that's always on keys. Yeah. Like most bands don't. Like maybe over the years, it's become more and more prevalent. But certainly at the time in the 70s, like it was not guaranteed that every band had somebody playing keys. For sure. So... Like to me, that immediately distinguishes you where you're like listening and you're like, okay, I I hear that electric piano in there. That's definitely carrying some of it. Well, and especially when you only have one guitarist, it goes a long way to filling it out. But also that shifting the sound, like if you had two guitarists and one keyboard, like you're just shifting it a little bit, but because you have one and one, it's literally like meeting it in the middle. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and when when you all play that more reserved approach, cause it's softer rock, it, that, uh, that extra thickness is important. Whereas like, yeah, if you're going to only have one guitar, one drum, one bass, 
and you play as aggressively as Zeppelin, like, yeah, it's plenty full, but if you play a sparse style with a sparse lineup, then it just sounds kind of hollow. It sounds silly. Yeah. All right, and then track nine is I Don't Want to Know, which is written by Stevie but sung by Lindsay. Uh, it actually predates the rest of the songs on the album by several years. She wrote it when uh, she and Lindsay were performing as Buckingham Knicks. Uh, and as if there wasn't enough drama involved with this album, uh, the others recorded it without her with Lindsay singing both his and her parts. And then they just showed it to her when they were done because, uh, silver spring, which is another song of hers was, uh, I guess causing problems with fitting it all onto vinyl lengthwise, which I don't really understand because they're not that different in length. Um, but anyhow, uh, she was understandably incensed, but allowed them to make the swap. Otherwise she would have only had two songs on the album, uh, dreams and gold dust woman. Um, and they did include silver spring on, uh, one of the, uh, one of the reissues and it's a good song. Uh, but I think it was probably a good, a good call. This one, I think I like better. It, uh, it's a great fit here. Anyway, it starts with the chorus. I don't want to know the reasons why love keeps right on walking on down the line. I don't want to stand between you and love, honey. I just want you to feel fine. And it repeats that once. And then verse one, finally, baby, the truth has come down. Now take a listen to your spirit. It's crying out loud, trying to believe. Oh, you say you love me, but you don't know. You got me rocking in a reeling. So yeah. And then chorus again. And then verse two, finally, baby, the truth has been told. Now you tell me that I'm crazy. It's nothing that I don't know. Trying to survive. Oh, you say you love me, but you don't know. You got me rocking in a reeling, hanging on to you. Uh, and then the chorus, but only once through. Uh, so, um, interesting that even though it uh, predates the other songs on the album by several years, the lyrics actually fit really well with the others on this album in terms of both subject matter and tone. It's a nice jumpy one here, uh, before we, we get into two more subdued ones to, uh, to finish off the album. That's definitely one of those moves where it's like, I don't want to say it's a dick move, but it's definitely something that like when you think of auteur producers, like guys that can do everything and that like if you leave them in the room alone at the studio and you guys go home, like you will show up the next day and they've recorded all your parts for you. And it is played well enough that it's like, what are you going to do? Retrack it to, to what? Not even play it as precisely? Yeah, well, and apparently uh, Lindsay and John did clash over stuff like that at times like apparent in the sessions for the album before this at one point Lindsay was trying to like tell them all what their parts should be and john said the band you're in is fleetwood mac and i'm the mac i play the bass like don't tell me how to play my bass part 
Yeah. No, and like, I mean, it's the same thing as like McCartney, like as much as he drove the success of the Beatles, he, you know, also drove a lot of tension in the band. And it's not because that's what his intention was, but that inevitably you run into situations where people are getting a little bit offended that you're saying like, oh, this is the part. And the thing is, is that if you're only, if the only thing that you care about in your head is the success of the song and how well it gets done, if you have a suggestion, you're just putting it out there. Cause you're like, I think it should be like this. Can we try it this way? But that over the years, it starts blending. Like it goes from, can we try it this way to no play it this way? Yeah. And then, right. I mean, when you're talking about a song that's not even written by the person that's now changing it around, yeah. Obviously, you're getting into some gray areas there. I mean, that is something. I mean, recording a songwriter's material without their permission is like, yeah, one of those gray areas where it's like, I guess if you're in a band together, it's like, I'm not saying it's cool, but I right. can understand how you get away with it. Well, but then when you're in the middle of a breakup, as if you needed to add any fuel to the fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We broke up, so I recorded one of her songs without her. Yeah. What a well, slap in the face. And with the, um, te- the tension with he and John, you add to it that he's the, the new kid on the block and John's been yeah. in the band for a decade yeah. and isn't yeah. original. He's like, dude. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it definitely, you know, shows you some of what is to come with Fleetwood Mac where it, like, you know, inevitably the same stuff that gets you to the top also, you know, breaks the streak because people get sick of the same stuff. And, you know, especially when it comes to somebody that like others are going to be like, oh, he's overbearing. I don't think Lindsey Buckingham's overbearing, like knowing what I know about the band. I think he did everything right to to get them where they got. And I think that without him in the equation, I don't know if they would have ever become like the biggest pop band in the world. I don't, like I think they would have been good. I think people would have liked them, but I don't think they would have reached the same peak. Yeah, probably not. And they to a certain extent they acknowledge that because they sort of allowed him him to take a bit more control in the process for this album because they went went into it with the express purpose of making a massive hit yeah well it worked and i like that he sings this song i think the song would actually be kind of dorky if it wasn't sung the way he sings it which is like kind of upbeat kind of off the cuff Mm -hmm. yeah it's a great little tune Mm -hmm. it's it actually would be one of the more impressive tunes i think that stevie songs (laughs) like like i don't say that as a dig because like her her expertise is like she writes lyrics that make you think Mm -hmm. and the melodies are always great but like dreams which is like you know the biggest hit that she ever wrote is like if if you just played it on an acoustic guitar by the end of it you'd be like okay i'm tired of it going back and forth it's the arrangement of it that makes it sound really interesting which is why it sounds really modern because most stuff now is like two three chords and it's the production that makes it interesting Mm -hmm. and her voice is providing most of the fluctuations and diversity right absolutely And then Christine takes her final turn for the penultimate song of the album, which is Oh Daddy. Verse 1, 
Oh, daddy, you know you make me cry. How can you love me? I don't understand why. Oh, daddy, if I can make you see, if there's been a fool, ra- a fool around, it's got to be me. Yes, it's got to be me. Verse 2. Oh, daddy, you soothe me with your smile. You're letting me know you're the best thing in my life. Oh, daddy, if I can make you see, if there's been a fool around, it's got to be me. Yes, it's got to be me. Chorus, why are you right when I'm so wrong? I'm so weak, but you're so strong. Everything you do is just all right. And I can't walk away from you, baby, if I tried. And then there's repetition of the chorus in verse two. So it's about Mick Fleetwood, whom the others in the band affectionately referred to as the Big Daddy, uh, partially because he's really tall and partially because he was the band, the sort of de facto leader. Um, it's primarily supposed to be from his wife, Jenny's perspective, whom he'd recently uh, reconciled with. Um, and that, But it's also a nod to the fact that his direction for the band always turned out to be right. So uh, one of my favorites, actually, I like this song. I could never listen to this song seriously for a, a long time. Like when I was younger, I just, I, I didn't get it. Right. Like, mm-hmm. but that's the kind of dynamic you don't understand that like, right. Like the band dynamic, but right. also just like, it's one of those lyrics that right off the top is like, Oh daddy. And it's like, hmm, what, like what perspective is this being sung from right, right now? What is, like what really is going on? What's it implying? Because I, I don't think it's literally what it is saying. You know? Yeah. Just confessing her daddy issues to the world. <laughs> right. But I, I actually think that the, um, the song's really well done and I like the instrumentation of it. I, mm-hmm. as I was listening before, I really like when it does the dong and it really just sounds like an acoustic guitar is like the loudest thing in that mix where it's like, dirt. Oh, the, you're so strong and then it's like, dun, yeah. Dun, dun. yeah, 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 yeah. Which is like an interesting dynamic because like outside of the studio, you just couldn't get an acoustic guitar to sound that loud over top of drums and bass. Mm-hmm. But in the studio, you become unleashed and you can do anything. Like you like literally can just be like, ah, oh, just bring it up 10 dB for that part and then it'll be great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. So it's, uh, it's about that with Christine taking on his wife's perspective and also a tongue-in-cheek nod to the fact that his direction for the band always turned out to be right. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Cool. That's interesting. I I didn't know that. Um, Maybe I'll go re-listen. Maybe (laughs) it'll move up from the last spot on the album for me. That's where it's... It's interesting for me because usually the... In jazz, the drummer was often considered like the, the leader of the group you know, but yeah, like Rich and his or- yeah, yeah, but but in like rock and pop and stuff, it quickly became like kind of guitar singer driven most often. So it's interesting to have a band where the drummer is like the leader. Agreed. Plus, like the name is his name. Yeah. Like really. Right. So like that to me is really cool. And um I mean he's a really great drummer. I love watching him play. He's a big guy, hey? Yeah. Well, I think that's why they call him Big Daddy. 
but, but like like to the extent that it's like kind of awkward how big he is yeah yeah because a lot of drummers were short like ringo's five eight charlie was around that bottom was like average like five eleven and what's mcfleetwood six four yeah he's gotta be every picture i see of him he's like towering over towering <laughs> over everyone else like I even noticed it at six two. Uh, whenever we'd be sharing a bill with people, I have to be like adjusting things as high as they go to play comfortably. Yeah, no, I mean, imagine being six five one. You like see his legs with the kit. Like he can't do anything to actually get it to be like a right angle. Like it's like <laughs> way up there. Yeah, so, which starts to lead to like you know sore back problem. and all yeah. sorts of. Stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And frankly, it inhibits your ability to do faster, more complex stuff with the pedals. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That stuff only works right when you have the drum kit set up optimally. All right. It's like an ergonomics. Yeah. Like your foot should be slightly dangling to be able to pull it off. Right. And then Stevie takes center stage for the closer, Gold Dust Woman. Verse 1, rock on, Gold Dust Woman. Take your silver spoon, dig your grave. Heartless challenge, pick your path and I'll pray. Wake up in the morning, see your sunrise. Loves to go down. Lousy lovers pick their prey, but they never cry out loud. Cry out. Um, so this verse is addressed to groupies. Uh, apparently they would often like scowl at Stevie and Christine and then light up when the guys walked in. Um, and you can definitely hear the, the resentment in her voice, but also, um, not really, uh, seeing them as a true threat or not, uh, thinking that they're quite on her level. Um, the, uh, heartless challenge and uh yeah anyway um and the gold dust is cocaine um then the chorus well did she make you cry make you break down shatter your illusions of love and is it over now do you know how pick up the pieces and go home um so and I don't think it has to be exclusive to groupies, but you know, these women that are coming after Lindsay now, now the chorus is directed at Lindsay saying, um, okay, have you had your fun now? Do you, uh, know how to pick up the pieces and go home? Um, then verse two, rock on ancient queen, follow those who pale in your shadow. Rulers make bad lovers you better put your kingdom up for sale, up for sale. Um, so this verse is autobiographical. Um, and the, uh, you can definitely hear that she's, uh, you know, positioning, positioning herself above the, the women that Lindsay is now going for, uh, follow those who pale in your shadow. And you can really hear the, the anger and, the way she sings the word shadow, um, or disdain, I should say. Um, 
rulers make bad lovers is interesting. Um, sort of pointing out the contrast between her her great success in her musical career being a ruler uh, and uh, her not so great success in her love life. Um, as a history person, it kind of makes me think too of, uh, you know, like Queen Elizabeth I, the Virgin Queen and stuff with rulers make bad lovers. I don't think that's what she's getting at, but just made me think of that. Um, and then the chorus again, and then a variation of it. Uh, and now tell me, is it over now? Do you know how to pick up the pieces and go home? And then an outro, oh, pale shadow of a woman, black widow, pale shadow of a dragon, dust woman. Um, so Stevie has since said that, uh, it was even though it was criticizing these other women who were, um, you know, letting cocaine get the best of them, and um, just after uh, Lindsay for more shallow reasons and whatnot, uh, she's since said that it was also kind of a not even necessarily a crying out for help, but an acknowledgement of her own um, perhaps problem with the drug that. It, wasn't necessarily um, her ruling it anymore, um, but at the time it uh, it wouldn't be cool for for a rock star to admit that uh, that they needed assistance. It was uh, it was seen as a pretty recreational drug in those circles at that time and. Uh, if you wanted to be you know, respected as one of the big boys, you had to be able to handle your stuff. This song, I thought I was going to rank this last on the whole album when I went into it, and it ended up being third last. Um, so it actually kind of already climbed the, my own chart a uh, little bit where I was like, eh, it's got pretty good energy. It just never did it for me. It, like to me, it, I don't know. There's something about it also being like the ultimate track on the album. It, it kind of has this feeling of like an afterthought to me kind of thing. Even though like, I know that's not something that most people get from it. I don't know. Just for me, I, it's like, it almost sounds like a B side of the chain. Huh, that's interesting because I like it a lot better than the chain. Yeah, which is funny. It's just to me, it sounds so derivative, which of course is because I've grown up thinking that the chain is like a huge song in their catalog, which I mean, it is. But at the time of this being released, it was just one song on the album and one song later in the album. Yeah. And I'm not, there's probably Fleetwood Mac aficionados out there who could tell us, but for all we know, this one was actually written first at the right. sessions, right? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. It's actually uh, addressed to, or like about uh, groupies. It's like partially autobiographical, but the first verse is like targeted at groupies who apparently would, you know, scowl at Stevie and Christine. And then when the guys walk in, they're like, Oh, Hey. <laughs> <laughs> And the gold dust in question is cocaine. Bring it back to 
Of course, of course. Glossy but jittery. Okay, in terms of general thoughts about rumors, it certainly reflects the long perfectionistic uh, recording process. Uh, these are really well-written, well-engineered, well-produced pop songs. And uh, as Spencer said, there's a reason that uh, it's been so popular uh, when you have an album that, that sounds like it could, like every single song could have been a hit single, you're doing pretty well. Um, it definitely has a, as I said, glossy but jittery kind of feel, uh, really pristine sound quality, um, very uh, energetic, even though it's, um, you know, softer rock and there are some ballads on it. Uh, it does have um, a pretty good push to it, which uh, of course is in line with what we were mentioning about the the cocaine factor at this point and uh, what I was saying about how the the sort of acid fueled idealism that characterized so much of the the mid 60s mid to late 60s um, in the rock world and culture more broadly especially in California by this point a decade later had given way to sort of coke fueled hedonism and uh the this is re getting towards the line where um this is right around when punk was starting and pushing back against what they deemed to be uh kind of ridiculous excess on the part of uh rock musicians and this del this album is definitely um you can hear the, even though the music isn't really excessive, like they, they're pretty tight focused songs, just the, the overall uh, sound and uh, certainly the process behind it reflects the, the excess that characterized the rock experience in the mid seventies. And further to that point, thematically, you really don't find any uh, philosophical songs on here or I mean dreams has a little bit of that which we talked about but um, you know it's not trying to really change the way uh, the listeners or society at large thinks or acts or anything um, it's pretty much about getting laid and getting paid uh, all 11 songs are fairly directly about relationships, understandably, since that's what was on all their minds uh, with what was going on in their personal lives at this point. Um, I think I, I read some reviews about the album before as part of my process, and a lot of them mention how part of its, its appeal and what keeps it from being, uh, you know, just like cheesy, uh, broken heart, uh, music uh, or cheesy pop is that um, is the contrast between the the pretty upbeat sounding uh, music and the um, uh, really hurting you know lyrics and subject matter and that 
that contrast really makes it interesting. Uh, if you just had, you know, if you pair really upbeat lyrics with upbeat music, it's like, okay, well, I'm walking on sunshine. I can only listen to that for so long. And conversely, um, if you, the stuff that you typically think of as like breakup music, like, oh, I'm going to listen to Joni Mitchell's blue album. Um, you can only listen to so much of that before you're like, oh, gee, well, I guess I'll just go jump off a bridge then. Um, but the, the, the juxtaposition between the, the heartbroken subject matter and the, uh, like I said, glossy and jittery, uh, presentation of it is quite interesting. Love the cover. Who it, it's Mick Fleetwood and, and John Stevie. McVie. John McVie. Oh no, no, sorry. I'm talking about the, the one before this. Yeah. It's Mick and Stevie. Yeah, I don't know. There's something about the silhouette of that that's just really, really nice. I like the color of it too, that kind of cream mm-hmm. color. It's not white. It's not yellow. And it's actually a bit of foreshadowing because they ended up uh, starting an affair that lasted about two years, like later in 77. Yeah, which is interesting. And I, I remember when I learned about that, and I was like, God, what a weird band that would be <laughs> I know. Like, like really like like i just can't imagine like there's enough friction that comes up in a band when you're just four Without dudes the <laughs> yeah <laughs> um it's kind of interesting how he's got those two like massive balls suggestively hanging <laughs> oh i didn't even see that yeah look man Oh, that's, that's kind of funny. That's funny that that came out in the seventies and was a hit. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it ties in with what we were saying about, Oh daddy. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's funny. I didn't even know that was there. And then the, the footstool that he's like stepping on. So random, like looks like something you'd see at like your grandma's house with the upholstery on it and the yeah 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 and it's like i hope that that just was in the room and they they just tossed it in like i hope they didn't send a guy out to go buy that for the cover you know yeah like scour every antique shop in napa county (laughs) yeah and then i think just purely in terms of the singing and playing um it's excellent and also a great exercise in restraint you know everything is in service of the songs because they're really good songs. And, um, certainly they, they all had more chops, more technical chops than they show here, uh, which really shows a a great understanding of the difference between what's required in the studio and what makes great live music. Um, they, they really display a, a master, understanding of um you know song craft and studio craft um which is part of why it's such a massive uh why it was such a massive hit and why it continues to be such a massive seller um there's you know sometimes you have one but not the other a lot of artists know how to write really incredible songs but don't quite nail how to present them perfectly in the studio for radio play and all that, if that's what you're going for, which they obviously were here. And, um, 
lots of people know how to make really great sounding recordings, but the it's just not that clever of a song. So it's like, okay, well, yeah, it sounds nice, but you're not really saying anything. And this album has a high, high combination of both. They also have a huge advantage in having three singers in Lindsay, Christine, and Stevie, who are all good enough to be the full-time lead singer in a uh, in a top-tier band, and yet they have all three of them, and they do a great job of uh, alternating between them here, which keeps it really fresh and uh, contributes to that sense of momentum. And they're all unique voices in there. Like uh, Lindsay, I think, is a his voice is sweeter than your typical rock front man. Uh, Christine probably has the prettiest voice of the three of them. Uh, and great contrast between her, uh, her smooth, um, yeah, soft, smooth, uh, vo- soft's the wrong word cause she has power, but between her, uh, really pretty smooth voice and Stevie's, uh, huskier voice that suggests some uh, some grit underneath. In terms of placing rumors within Fleetwood Mac's catalog, uh, I think it's definitely their best complete album. The the one before this the their second self-titled, uh, the first one with Lindsay and Stevie is great too, and has some songs that can stack up, uh, perfectly well with the best songs on rumors. Say you love me, Rihanna on landslide. Uh, but rumors is definitely more consistent top to bottom. Um, the album after rumors Tusk has some good stuff. I love the title track on that one, but, uh, and it's a double that definitely can't uh, keep pace with rumors for like song for song quality. Um, and there's a sprinkling of other uh, songs that I really, really love from other albums of theirs, but rumors would definitely be the best um, complete album in their discography. I think uh, I don't think that's a very controversial take. Uh, and I like uh, some of the stuff from the earlier blues uh, incarnation as well. Uh, Hypnotized is a great song from the Mystery to Me album in '73, um, and uh, they they did great stuff before that. Uh, they guest they had guest appearances with the Grateful Dead sometimes in 1970, uh, and when they would be sharing the bill with each other. And uh, they were a very interesting band back then as well. Um, more adventurous for sure, but this is their uh, this is them at their streamlined best. In terms of scoring and ranking rumors, I'm inclined to go with about a four point seven out of five. Uh, I don't mean that disrespectfully at all that I didn't give it a full five out of five. It just doesn't quite. And this is where personal preference colors it. Even when you try to be super objective, because I am not as much of a 
uh, a pop fan, I prefer stuff that's a bit more uh, instru- instrumentally adventurous or uh, an album that has at least one epic, like a longer song, um, that kind of thing. Uh, I prefer a bit heavier. Uh, that makes it easier for me to put an album like Led Zeppelin Four or Sticky Fingers at the full the the perfect score uh whereas somebody who is more pop leaning uh and really values that type of songcraft will have an easier time putting rumors at a 5 than uh albums like those two so um i you know i highly respect it and rate it really highly according to acclaimed music the site that averages out a song or albums finishes across all published lists rumors is the 59th most celebrated album of all time uh third most of 1977 and 18th most of the 70s um those sound like pretty fair scores if a tad underrated actually um I definitely think it should be number one for 1977, or at the very least should not be behind the two that it's behind. Uh, the uh, In first, it's never mind the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols. And in second is Marquee Moon by Television. Uh, I definitely think Rumors should be ahead of those two. Um, are there albums from 77 that I prefer personally uh as far as where my tastes lean subjectively speaking uh yeah probably um one that we'll talk about in a month or so let there be rock by acdc which um i'm sure spencer would find blasphemous for me to put that ahead of rumors and i'm not saying that it's um more clever songwriting or anything but Uh, for my personal taste. Most days I would rather listen to it, but, um, and you know, Pink Floyd's Animals would be in that discussion for my personal favorite albums of 77. Uh, Even in the quietest moments, Super Tramp, uh, Exodus, Bob Marley and the Wailers, but uh, Rumors should be ahead of the two that are currently ahead of it for sure, I think. And I wouldn't have a problem with it being the most celebrated album of 77. In fact, that's I would have expected it to be. Um, and then uh, six individual songs from it, so more than half the album, are uh, are listed themselves on the song list, which shows you how, uh, how jam-packed full of uh, hits it is. Go Your Own Way is the 216th most celebrated song of all time, the fifth most of 1976. Remember, it was released as a single in December 76, so it gets counted there. Uh, and the 43rd most of the 70s, Dreams, is the 573rd most celebrated song of all time, 12th most of 77, and 120th most of the 70s. The Chain is at number 1238 all time, uh, 29th for 77 and 260. 260th of the 70s um don't stop is at number 2187 all time 48 for 1977 and 456 for the 70s gold dust woman is at 
uh, 52, 34 all time, uh, 109 for 77 and, uh, 1011th in the seventies. And finally you make loving fun is the, uh, 6,928th most celebrated song of all time, 130th most of 77. And, uh, yeah, the, uh, 1,288th most of the seventies. Um, so as far as my personal list, uh, it's tough. Cause this is one where I do have a, a bit of a divide between my trying to be objective self and my subjective self. Um, but let's go with subjective. Um, I, I think I would feel confident saying that it's in my top 25 albums on my personal list. Um, which I guess means that I like it about twice as much as the average since it's the 59th most celebrated album of all time. Um, yeah, even if you make the argument that it's objectively better than some that I prefer, there there are going to be several uh, Zeppelin, Stones, Beatles, and maybe a few other artists uh, albums that I would put ahead of it personally, um, and two Grateful Dead albums, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, f- really fantastic album and you're splitting hairs to, to critique it too much. No, but I mean, it's definitely one of the best albums of all time and it's a hundred percent worth a listen. And if you don't know what a Fleetwood Mac is, you should. <laughs> it's not, it's not a truck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, so that brings us to the end. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. If you are new to the show, thank you for stopping by, and I uh, hope you'll stick around. And if you've been listening for a while, uh, thank you so much for the loyalty. It means a lot. As I said at the beginning, I encourage you to follow the show on any and all social media platforms so that you can be kept abreast of all the latest happenings pertaining to the show. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok at rocktalk.dr.cropper on Twitter at rocktalkdrcrop with two Ps, and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, rocktalk with Dr. Cropper. And you can also email me, rocktalk.dr.cropper at gmail.com. And please feel free to reach out via any of those platforms if you have any questions for me, feedback, topics that you'd like me to cover, which uh, if you want priority sequence for, or you just have an appetite for a bit more content, consider subscribing to Dr. Cropper's Office Hour, the Apple Podcasts exclusive premium spinoff of the show. $4.99 American per month gets you access to a minimum of two subscriber-only bonus episodes, in addition to 10% off of merchandise, hoodies and t-shirts, both available in white and black, with the show's script logo in the inverse. Um, And uh, as I said, with the topic requests, especially let me know if you have uh, suggestions for matchups comparing one artist to another. I did Beatles Stones uh, last week on Premium, and I think I'm going to do a a part two to that because I proposed uh, that 
if you listen to their their five album peaks back to back, they're actually pretty comparable. So I'm going to actually do that and report my findings. Uh, anyway, so fun stuff happening over there. Check it out. And uh, if you feel so inclined to leave a rating and review wherever you listen, those are very helpful to me. Also, if you feel like starting your own show, uh, consider my hosting service, Buzzsprout, uh, very reasonably priced and easy to use. And if you sign up with them, you'll get a $20 Amazon gift card, uh, courtesy of your affiliation with me. Lastly, you may notice at the bottom of the description, the buy me a coffee link, the virtual tip jar, no pressure, of course, but if you feel so inclined, it really helps me uh, stay awake while I'm listening to and analyzing all of this stuff. All right. Uh, so once again, thank you. And next week we will be, or maybe later this week, next episode will be, um, the Grateful Dead Dave's Picks volume 41. It finally arrived. So I'll have a listener to to that and give you my review. And then the episode after that will be uh, Led Zeppelin's Australia, New Zealand, 1972 tour. A look at that for its 50th anniversary with a guest you haven't heard from before, my friend from Venice. Uh, so that should be fun. All right. Uh, thanks for listening and, uh, take care until next time. All right. Class dismissed.